You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Shamoon 3 and the renewed activity of charming kittens strike observers as the long-expected Iranian cyber retaliation for re-imposition of sanctions. The Czech cert says Huawei and ZTE both represent a threat. Huawei insists it didn't do nothing. Facebook faces a boycott in the wake of Senate-commissioned reports on Russian trolling. And PewDiePie's followers deface a Wall Street Journal page. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 18, 2018. Shamoon 3 seems to have affected a wider range of targets than at first believed. McAfee says the attacks affected victims in the oil, gas, telecommunications, energy, and government sectors in the Middle East and Southern Europe. Symantec reports more signs that this Shamoon infestation came from Iranian threat actors, including its association with attacks that used stone drill malware. Shamoon 3, as well as Charming Kitten's reappearance with two-factor authentication-defeating attacks, have led some observers to conclude that the long-expected Iranian cyber retaliation for reimposed sanctions is underway. The Czech government's CERT has issued an unambiguous warning that Huawei and ZTE equipment represents a security threat. The report specifically cites Chinese laws requiring companies to cooperate with intelligence and security services, as grounds for excluding devices produced by either company from government networks. Huawei, for its part, continues to regard itself publicly as a victim of geopolitical competition, singled out for special punishment by the U.S. for reasons having everything to do with trade and nothing to do with security. The U.S. Senate commissioned reports on Russian influence operations point out extensive trolling via Instagram, much of it directed toward African-American voters, as the Russian government sought to exploit fissures in American civil society. The NAACP has responded to those portions of the reports that indicated voter suppression efforts by returning a donation the organization had received from Facebook, which owns Instagram, and called for a boycott of the social networking company. The boycott, hashtag LogoutFacebook, began this morning and is scheduled to last for a week. The NAACP says the boycott is a response to what it calls the tech company's history of data hacks which unfairly target its users of color. Facebook has said it intends to beef up its content moderation efforts to police this sort of influence operations 
the two Senate commissioned reports released yesterday outline. The reports, one by social media and brand protection shop New Knowledge, the other by the Computational Propaganda Research Project, a joint effort by Oxford researchers and Graphica, another social media analysis company, fleshed out much what has been known concerning the operations of the St. Petersburg Troll Farm, the Russian government-directed Internet Research Agency. What's new in the report is the extent to which the Russian influence operation depended upon highly targeted, culturally literate marketing to U.S. political, ethnic, and cultural subgroups over Instagram. This activity dwarfed, for example, the purchase of Facebook ads by Russian operators. The shift in the propaganda's center of gravity to Instagram occurred in 2017, when too much attention made Facebook a less attractive messaging platform. The New Knowledge study suggests the magnitude of the change. They found 187 million engagements with users on Instagram, as compared to 77 million on Facebook. The reports were also interesting in that they suggest the Russian activity is ongoing and complex. It involves an interesting mix of mass marketing, the electronic equivalent of direct mail, and traditional human tradecraft. There were infiltrations of online games, browser extensions, and music apps. The St. Petersburg Trolls took to social media to encourage Pokemon Go players, at its peak popularity during the 2016 election season, to adopt politically divisive usernames. Russian-controlled accounts connected with individuals through merchandise that carried messages by making follower requests, dangling job offers, and establishing helplines that encouraged people to divulge sensitive information that could be used in subsequent efforts. These last two in particular are updates of long-standing ways of recruiting agents, begin small, learn about the targets, and habituate them to doing you little, more or less innocent, favors. But the rest is all marketing, and it seems the shame of the world that the country that for good or ill invented modern marketing should see its rival run circles around it. There's a new report recently published tracking cybersecurity in Fortune 500 companies. Our UK correspondent Carol Terrio has the story. Rapid7 have just put out a brand new report, and I got a chance to chat with Todd Beardsley, Rapid7's Director of Research, about what they were up to. I've seen that you guys are issuing a new cyber investigative report called the Industry Cyber Exposure Report, Fortune 500. This is a fancy title. So what were you guys looking for? <laughs> um, so uh, for the last, I'd say, three or four years, uh, Rapid7 has produced something called the National Exposure Index, essentially a, a look at the whole Internet. And, but for this report, um, we narrow that down to just Fortune 500 companies. And we map out what IP space belongs to all of these companies. Uh, we bucket them into particular industries. So like it might be like retail or technology or wholesalers or something like that. Um, and then we take a look at the exposure among just the Fortune 500. The Fortune 500 is a pretty good stand-in proxy for like the U.S. economy. Um, you know, they employ millions of people. They represent like uh, almost a third of, of U.S. GDP. And so we can we can look at the Fortune 500 and figure out like what exposure looks like for them. Um, and then we can kind of say some things about like how U.S. companies like treat the Internet and how they what they expose to the Internet, um, how they're exposed 
and you know the kinds of things that those I2 organizations, which tend to be very well resourced because they're Fortune 500, um, you know where they can like get the most bang for their buck when it comes to exposure. Fascinating. Okay, I have my bucket of popcorn. Do you have a few tidbits from this report you can share with us? The average company in the Fortune 500 exposes about 500 services to the internet. What does that mean, though? I, I will let you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no problem. So, like, a service on the internet, so that would be something like a website or a DNS service uh, or a SMB service, which is how you do, like, Windows networking or SSH, which is, like, a secure remote shell. You know, all of these services, like, this is why you mm -hmm. have the internet. Like, you want to be able to do this. We figure like this is a this is a pretty good baseline for us. Like if you're a, if you're a Fortune 500 company, you have a couple billion dollars flying around. Like you are likely to expose about 500 services. Now there are some companies that expose way more than that. Like that hit like 2,000 to 3,000 services, and we would consider those companies to be more exposed because they have more attack surface. They have more machines they have to keep updated. They have more services they have to patch. They have more like. What kind of companies are way up there? We saw things like like companies that are in like business services, uh, in technology, unsurprisingly, um, will expose a lot more. Um, you know, but we have yeah. companies that are in the apparel bucket don't expose much. Like they may have you know a website, a DNS server, and that's about it. Okay, so what takeaways do you think people get from reading this report? We look at um, not just volume, but we also look at a couple particular services. Uh, one of them is uh, SMB, uh, which stands for Server Message Block, uh, and it is a protocol used almost always by Windows um, that is pretty much an everything protocol. It does authentication, it does file sharing, it does printer management, um, and SMB for a long time uh, has, has been a favorite uh, uh, target for attackers, and Microsoft knows this. And so we're at a point today where we say, like, do not ever expose SMB. There's no business reason. There's no technical reason. There's no practical reason to have SMB exposed to the Internet today. Then we go count, you know, and we count among the Fortune 500, like who's actually still exposing SMB. And the number's not zero, <laughs> which is a bummer. We also see, um, like, insecure old protocols like Telnet, which is a protocol from, like, 1978 uh, that is used for usually for like remote management like you, you tell that to a computer to do like operating system things right you reboot it or whatever um, telnet is is very much deprecated by a newer protocol called ssh um, which does almost the same thing but it does it with cryptography um, and so telnet has no business being on the modern internet today because it's it's old it's 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 impossible to secure in any reasonable way um, and so we just we're 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 on a crusade to get rid of Telnet. I think you can take a look at the findings from the Fortune 500 and apply them like directly to to your enterprise. We cover a couple other things in the in the report, but I would just recommend people go download it. Indeed. Thanks to Tom Beardsley of Rapid7. This was Carol Terrio for the Cyberwire. We've heard and passed on much sound advice against placing too much importance on attribution of attacks to specific actors. It's often said that unless you wear a badge and carry a gun, attribution really doesn't matter that much. That's certainly true in part. One of the first things one naturally wants to know when attacked is who did it. But all too often, knowing who did it means little in terms of defending yourself or recovering from an attack. Of course, attribution is interesting when it reveals an attacker's tactics, techniques, and procedures. That can be useful and that's some solid value anyone might take from threat intelligence. 
But here's another way attribution, in the whodunit sense, may matter terribly. Your cyber insurance policy might not cover an act of cyber war. Mondelez International, a major food company that was hit hard by NotPetya, submitted a claim for more than $100 million in losses it incurred as a result of that attack. According to Reinsurance News, however, Zurich Insurance is disputing the claim on the grounds that the policy they wrote for Mondelez excluded coverage for a hostile or warlike act by any government or sovereign power. NotPetya has generally been attributed to Russia, and that attribution has been convincing enough for Zurich to hold its payout. There will be much more to be said on the matter. As Reinsurance News points out, the burden of proof here is on Zurich. But it's worth noting that there's a good chance any cyber insurance policy you may have could contain a war clause. The large print giveth, and the small print taketh away. Finally, we're still following the followers of PewDiePie, who continue to disport themselves as what Mr. Cluley has taught us in another context to call cockwombles. Hacking printers to urge people to follow YouTube star and noted impresario of the Tide Pod Challenge PewDiePie? Check. Hacking printers to encourage such following, and at the same time to assume the moral and technical superiority that comes with telling people they've been pwned, and aren't they glad someone told them so they can up their sorry game? Check and double-check. Defacing a Wall Street Journal page to display a poorly written message saying the journal apologized for its animadversions about Mr. Pie? You betcha. And that last one achieved a kind of harmonic convergence of loserdom, since it closed with the message, we also need your credit card number, expiry date, and the lucky three digits on the back to win the chicken dinner in Fortnite. Dance on, all ye cockwombles. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, it's great to have you back. Um, you know, we're, we're coming up quickly here on the end of the year and uh, thought it might be helpful to look back uh, at the year in review and uh, track some of the things that uh, you all saw this year and how that informs what you're going to look for in the year to come. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, the one I wanted to talk about was basically our Voldev team just knocking it out of the park this year. Hmm. For those of you who don't know, our vulnerability discovery team basically looks for bugs and products that people use every day. And this can be anything from, you know, uh, a library that's used in, say, an iPhone, a, a Mac computer, to, you know, uh, specialized software that few people touch. And the reason we look at it is because people need to make sure that devices are patched. And we found bugs in very old libraries that touch huge numbers of things just because no one's ever looked. And so part of what the Vol team does is finding that, working with vendors to, you know, coordinate disclosure, get patches out there. And in doing so, we've patched a record number of uh, things this year. Um, for our advisories, uh, we've gone from 201 advisories to 245 in this year. Uh, but from a CVE perspective, it's even higher because of the way that uh, MITRE asked us to assign CVEs. We've gone from 202 to 394. So think about that. That's more than one CVE per day. Wow. When you put it in terms like that, it's really amazing how many bugs these folks found. I mean, give me some insight. What is the, uh, what's the return on this investment for for the Talos Group and for Cisco to to invest in this sort of thing, I mean, it's not it's not that you're only going and poking around in your own devices to look for these things. This is a community project, right? Well, that's actually a common misconception. So at Cisco, we have our team looking at non-Cisco software, and then we have another team in our Advanced Security Initiatives group that actually look at Cisco software. Hmm. So we actually have a specific team for that who's super productive, uh, and they do their own blog posts. But when we look, we look for things that are not Cisco. Uh, and to give you an idea of what we get out of this, so, you know, my favorite one of all time, I think, was the uh, the LibTIFF uh, vulnerability. So if you're not familiar with LibTIFF, it's one of those ancient graphics libraries. Like it, you know, probably dates back into the 80s, if not before. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so what we found was basically a buffer overflow in LibTIFF. So you could effectively send someone a malformed iMessage and potentially get code execution on the device. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, when you think of it in terms of that, getting that fixed is pretty important because the reality is we are not the only ones looking. It is not unusual for us to have a vulnerability collision, which means when we discovered it and reported it, well, someone else discovered it and reported it at the same time. And so if you think about the fact that that happens relatively regularly, you really start to get an idea of how many different teams around the world are looking for these. And that's not even counting criminal organizations. That's teams of good guys trying to do the same research. Now, looking ahead towards next year, uh, do you uh, anticipate... Uh Continued acceleration? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's most important to Voldev is finding new and more efficient ways to find these type of bugs and to help vendors identify these security issues. So I think we're going to continue to see these numbers climb. I hope that we continue to knock out high severity, you know, remotely exploitable bugs so that there are less out there for our adversaries. Yeah. All right. Well, Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.